welcome to the Bartender Atlas podcast. I'm the host, Josh Lindley, and this week on the show, we have Eric Castro. He's the host of Bartender at Large, owner of Polite Provisions, Boilermaker, and Raised by Wolves. He's also a former brand ambassador. Uh, on this week's episode, Eric shares a story about uh, a run-in with the law, so I figured this is as good a time as any to share some feelings about the police. Look, I know that your cousin or your sister or your uncle is a cop, and they are probably really nice, and they just want to catch the bad guys. The thing is, police forces on the whole are flawed institutions. At this point in time, there are a lot of people starting to notice a lot of flawed institutions and doing a lot of work to figure out how they, and honestly, how we, are involved in them and uh, how we've been upholding these systems of oppression. The police as an institution is one of the most obvious examples of this. So, while your brother maybe he just joined the force so that he could catch bad guys... Who decides who the bad guys are and how they should be punished? Anyway, here's Eric Castro and I talking about mixtapes and tortillas on the Bartender Atlas podcast. Eric Castro, going to start this off the way that I start them all off. Where did you grow up? Oh, shoot. Oh, we're recording? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in a town um, called uh, Hemet, Hemet, California. It's a town in the Inland Empire. It, it, it's a very, very interesting little place. It was, it was mostly, I would say, my, my the neighborhood I grew up in was mostly like, I'd say like working class white people and Mexicans. Right. And then with a little bit of Asians and African Americans and stuff sprinkled in. It is California after all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I would, as I do want to stress, it's very working class. Mm-hmm. It, it, um, it, I, I would even describe it as rough. I mean, it, it's, it's voted um, one of the 50 most miserable places in the United States to live, according to Newsweek. Springfield's got something to say about that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, granted, it's only I think number thirty-eight, but it is. It's 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 just a it's a rough little town, man. Yeah, gets really hot in the summer, but you know I had a lot of fun working there. I mean, I had a lot of fun growing up there. You, uh, what sort of school did you go to? I went to a few. Yeah. Uh, I went to. Uh, you know, I, I went to a little, you know, kindergarten class, obviously. But when I my, I first lived in a little town called San Jacinto, which is right next to it. Um, and then from there, you know, uh, I moved to, to Hemet, which is only it's like 10 minutes away. Then went to, uh, you know, a couple of elementary schools, a middle school, high school. And then high school, I had a lot of problems. Yeah, um, I, I had a lot of anger issues when I was younger, like like raging angry issues uh so I, I ended up going again they're getting kicked out of school a couple times and then i went to the first time i got kicked out i was a sophomore and i ended up going to like a homeschool which was super easy yeah uh i mean it, it's like you don't do anything all week and then and then one day you just get all your work done right and then i went back to to Hemet high and i got kicked out again and then i went to like a a, a continuation school for like problem children so what that means, it was mostly like like uh, like gangsters, like skinheads and pregnant girls. OK, it's, uh, yeah, man. Sounds like uh, exactly the, <laughs> the 38th roughest town in the U.S. Um, yeah, it was cool, man. A lot of fun there. I, I met a lot of good friends there. So before high school, though, when you were like a little kid, did you like school at all? Or was it always just kind of something you felt like you had to do? Like when you're like 9, 10, 11 years old? Uh, you know, I was always, I always did really well in school. I was like, a, kind of like a nerdy little kid. I was into like a lot of weird shit and I could, but I could read really well. Like I could read crazy, crazy well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
So I always did pretty well, even though I, I didn't really have like no no. The way I grew up, my parents are from Mexico, and they each had like my mom had like thirteen brothers and sisters, and my dad had eleven. Right. So or of eleven and of thirteen, so they grew up a, a different way than I did. So you know, growing up here, they were like they. I guess we were raised very hands off. Yeah. Like as long as we didn't get in trouble, like they didn't really hassle us. Like you could go to bed whatever time you wanted to, as long as you woke up for school. Right. And if you couldn't wake up, that's when you like, that's when you had an issue. So I didn't really have a lot of oversight, but I ended up doing pretty well in school just cause I just, I wasn't really into sports or anything. I wasn't good at sports at all. And I think that's because I had extremely poor eyesight and it was never caught until um, I was in fifth grade. Right. So I did, I did really well in school. And then like probably around when I was like 12 years old or something, um, I, that's when I started getting in trouble. That's, I don't know why. I, don't, I think something about puberty just turned me like an angry kid. And I got booted all, out of all of my, like I was in kind of like the advanced math and, and some of the other advanced classes. And then I, I got put down with all the regular kids. I feel like that's when you start realizing who you are as a person too, is when you're like 11, 12 years old. And, you know, sometimes that person is still really interested in reading a lot. And sometimes that person wants to throw rocks through windows, right? Yeah. I was a shitty kid, man. <laughs> I, I honestly, like part of that's like the, one of the reasons like me and my wife haven't had children or haven't even discussed it yet because it's like, man, I was, I, I was just a very angry child. So you mentioned you didn't do any sports or anything because you couldn't see really well. What were you into <laughs> otherwise? Like, did you get into comic books or were you into music or what were you into? Oh, dude, I was heavy to comic books. I was heavy to like Greek mythology. I was obsessed with like ghosts and aliens. Um, I was super into comic books, like heavy, heavy into comic books. I was just like a nerdy little kid that read a lot. Right. Like, I, I just read like an insane amount as a kid. It's just, it's, it's what I, I mean, even now I, I read about a book a week. Um, I was just like a voracious reader as a child. And so I think everyone kind of like, even when I was getting in trouble, everybody kind of left me alone because they're like, well, he still seems like a studious enough. You, you know, here's the thing. I was like very studious, but I like, I did a lot of back talk and I would always get in trouble and I didn't get to go on field trips. Um, because it's like, you know, if there was like, for instance, in my, in my sixth grade class, if you, uh, if you got too many, like, I don't know, demerits or whatever, you couldn't go to, on, on the field trips. Like, we went, the whole class went to SeaWorld without me. But they fucked up because what ended up happening was, uh, I think after you got, like, 30 demerits or something, you couldn't go. But then after that, they had, like, no more punishment. <laughs> so once I hit, like, five, I don't know, I, had, like, lost the recess, and you hit 10, and you keep losing things at 15, 18, you keep losing, you know, um, opportunities. But after SeaWorld, there was no more. So I just... I was the only kid that didn't get to go. But then after that, they had nothing to like keep me from, from being bad. So what did you have to do the day that everyone else went to SeaWorld? Oh, I was lucky. My mom let me stay home from school that day. Okay. She like, took pity on me. I was imagining like, you're not allowed to come to SeaWorld with school and you just like rip out there on a bus or whatever instead and just go on your own. <laughs> oh, I think I was supposed to come to class. I was supposed to hang out another uh, class. I was supposed to hang out with like the fifth graders and like read or something. Right. Well, my mom took pity on me and was like, all right, you don't have to go. Yeah. But see, here's the thing. Even throughout this, I was still getting pretty decent grades. Right. I was just like, I was just a shitty kid. Throughout this conversation, I'm going to bring up a couple things that I've picked up in listening to Bartender at Large for however long you've been doing it now, 200 episodes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. One thing you mentioned on an episode of Bartender at Large, this was probably a year ago is uh, you mentioned okay. that you mentioned that you have a uh, internal tortilla level 
And uh, you mentioned that you grew up with Mexican parents and that if you go three or four days without a tortilla, you start kind of freaking out. Um, oh, man. Oh, brother, it's always tough when I'm in Europe. Mezcal is cool all over Europe now. There's got to be enough places doing yeah, tacos. Yeah, yeah. Mezcal is everywhere. They at least have a couple brands. Uh, but yeah, man, tortillas, bro, I need them. I need them, man. It's like like a comal is like a little uh, a little – I don't know. It's like a skillet that you use specifically for like making tortillas. I guess like Westerners would use them for, or you know, um, more traditionally, they'd be Westerners would use them for like making pancakes or something like that. Yeah, like crepes. Similarly, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, kind of, but not necessarily. But comal is spelled, you know, C O M A L. It's like a thing. It, it, every every Mexican household has one. I stayed at my sister's recently. She didn't have one, and oh man, I just gave her shit for like three days about it. <laughs> It's like, I'm like, are you serious? You don't have a comal? What do you just, how did you just make them in a pan? Make your tortillas in a pan? That's insane. <laughs> um, you do, <laughs> you are pretty into food though too, right? Oh, crazy into food. Yeah. Do you find when, I mean, obviously you own a couple different bars. Do you have anything to do with the food selection there as well? Or do you kind of hire the people that you know and trust? Um, not necessarily. Cause, uh, I, I tend to not be as involved with that because in California, you don't have to offer food if you have a, a specific liquor license. So polite provisions and raised by wolves don't do food. Right. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. But uh, at Boilermaker, yeah, I was involved with the initial process. Now I'm very hands-off in regard to the food. But in the early stages, I, 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 me and Greg Bohm and Donnelly were really, really um, involved with, uh, um, with our chef as he put together the burger and the menu. We know that you own bars. We'll talk a little bit about that in a bit, but um, you worked as a brand ambassador for a while, and sort of before brand ambassadors were so ubiquitous, uh, how did that come about? Hmm. Let me see. So what's happening, I had been working at, at Rick House for a while, and I'd been there for, directly involved with it for about a year and a half, if not longer. And I was probably about, I'd been managing the place for about a year, a little over a year, which is getting my ass kicked, man. This is like the early days of craft cocktails, you know, not the early days, but you know, still the earlier days in regards to modern craft cocktails. So a lot of the systems that, that we benefit from now weren't in place back then. Yeah. There wasn't really uh, any like kegs or anything, right? Yeah. And not even just that, but just like infrastructure. Like, you know, nowadays it's like, you know, a lot of these cocktail bars, they have like an HR department and, you know, or at least somebody that does the hiring and, and they have like, you know, mo- modern inventory systems and stuff like that. Uh, but back in those days, we were just, your, your schedules were like just emailed to people, right? It wasn't like an online like schedule flyer, hot schedules or anything like that. So we didn't really have the, the, the infrastructure we need. So man, I, me and everybody there, we were working crazy hours. Like everybody's working crazy hours. Like, you know, a, a lot of times people will complain like, oh man, you know, I was working like, I worked a 14 hour day. Oh man, I was like on my ass kicked. Like there was pretty common, you know, at at least, uh, we, we, me and the other manager, we were just working these crazy hours and it wasn't sustainable. And I think there, I I was just over, I was just over working on premise, um, in one place and doing like 80 hour, 90 hour weeks, you know? So I was just like, you know, I'm going to explore this whole brand ambassador thing. At this point, uh, I had only been into craft cocktails for about, three or four years but i had been bartending for years before that so so i was already at the point where like you know i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna try something else i'm gonna give something else a shake so i uh, ended up becoming a brand ambassador and i actually really enjoyed it i i think i did pretty well at it i got i got nominated for the tales of cocktail brand ambassador of the year 
I made it to the Final Four, one of them. It was pretty cool. I, I had a good time doing it, but uh, the whole time I was doing it, I was just like, I think the reason why I had such a good time doing it was because I went in with the mindset that I'm going to do this for two years and I'm going to open my own bar. I didn't go into it like, hey, I'm going to do this maybe for the rest of my life, maybe not. So I, I do see how some people can kind of burn out on it if they don't know what they're going to do afterwards. Or if it's kind of, you know, they feel like they might be in limbo. But I actually had a really good time. It kicked my ass in a lot of respects because I think I, I got in this habit where I was partying way too much. But I think I learned a lot from it, and that, that's for sure. And I think going into it with a plan, too, that really – I mean, if you have your timeline ready to go, you know that there is an end date. So even in, even those weeks or those, you know, sometimes months where you are partying a little too much, you still know that there's an end yeah. date in sight, right? Yeah, that did actually, I think that, that might be why I think I went so overboard was because like, oh, I'm only going to lose two years. Just go nuts. You know, oh man, I got, I got deep shit, dude. I like put on like 20 pounds. Like my cholesterol was like 390 I got, I was in pretty bad shape. So I, I went way too overboard, man. I think I, I did like a stretch where I was in, I think I was in a bar every night drinking, I think 82 days in a row. Do not do that. If you hear this, don't do that. But this was also the days of brand, uh, being a brand ambassador when, where there was like no oversight. They were just like, all right, man, here's a credit card. Um, you know, your monthly budget's 10 grand. Uh, you don't have fun, man. And you're like, all right. So you're just, you know, supposed to spend 10 grand in, um, in a month. Yeah. On your gin. So I would just go and just, I, I got, I got, I think I took that same workaholic mentality to like representing for my brand. And I ended up getting a lot of trouble. And this was also way before any sort of wellness initiatives existed as far as the industry is concerned, right? Oh, 100% man. I think this was actually my case was actually the impetus for a lot of people to start thinking about it. <laughs> you created um, the wellness trend amongst bartenders. Yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's like was it's something that's already happening uh, nationwide that was already in the start spot. I, I do know of several brands that actually ended up telling me that they ended up like using my examples as a way to like talk to their brand and talk to employees. Like, um, and I was only really bad the first year because the second year, at the end of that first year, I went to the doctor for a checkup and he's like, "Dude, what the fuck is wrong with you?" Like your numbers are insane. Like nobody your age should have these kind of crazy health numbers. Like a, a cholesterol score. I don't even believe it. I think it's like a, it's a misreading. And then that's why I was like, I leveled with them. I, like, Hey man, like I, my job is I go and I drink and I eat nice restaurants and you know, I'm always traveling. So I'm like never like eating at home and I, I just drink a lot and I eat at airports, you know? And he was just like, okay, this is unacceptable. I'm gonna. I want to put you on medication, but since you're so young, I feel like that's kind of ridiculous to do because once you go on, you can't come off, or you're not supposed to come off. So he's like, so here's what I'm gonna do. I want you like no drink it for three months. Um, I need you to like you know lose lose ten pounds. I need you to start eating better. Blah blah. blah. So I was like scared, and at this point, honestly, I was starting to get heart palpitations. Like my chest was starting to hurt, and I was just like wasn't feeling well. And yeah, it was crazy. So then I was like, all right, cool. I like you know went to join the gym. Uh, started lifting weights and, you know, I, I lost about 15 pounds and I didn't drink for three months. I was supposed to not drink for three months, but I ended up doing almost four because, you know, when I made it called to make an appointment, I couldn't get an appointment for my doctor for almost a month. So I ended up going, uh, almost four months dry as a brand ambassador, dude. Think about how crazy that is. Yeah. And, but everybody knew industry wide, everyone was like, dude, Eric's like his, his like 
cholesterol is insane, man. Like that's like heart attack levels. That's crazy. So that's when it started making the circuit. And I was very public about it. I was like, Hey guys, look, I tried to like, you know, be the number one party animal. And like, I don't know what I was trying to do, but like now I'm in, I know I'm in bad shape. So, um, so when I came back to the doctor, my cholesterol had dropped to, uh, one ninety, which totally healthy levels, totally fine. Yeah. And it, it, it was, I lost 15 pounds and, you know, I, I, I had to buy all new clothes because my clothes didn't fit me. <laughs> and it was one of those situations where the doctor was like, wow, it looks like those meds we put you on really helped. And I was like, well, you didn't put me on meds. And he's like, what? How the hell did this happen? I'm like, dude, you told me to make some changes. And I made some changes. It's pretty amazing. I mean, you mentioned that obviously with school, you were still doing well and still getting good grades, even if you were being a shithead. And then... Yeah. And then a doctor says, listen, the way you're treating yourself is real bad. You got to take care of yourself and you just apply yourself to it so that you're still taking care of like you're taking care of all of your business, even if it's not necessarily the way that you should be going about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's actually a really good way of, to interpret that. Like you seem like a really uh, dedicated dude, no matter what it is that you're dedicated to. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, even if it's just like being a being an all around, just like piece of riffraff, you know, it seems like I still try to be the best piece of riffraff I could be. <laughs> uh, so how does that fit into you working as a brand ambassador and then you did your two years, decided to open bars. Um, obviously, you know, you've worked at a bunch of some of the best bars in the world and you've opened a couple that everybody loves. Um, and they're by coastal something that I'm curious about, cause obviously like we travel a lot with bartender Atlas and you sort of, you know, if you spend three days in a town, you sort of get an idea of what it's about, but for you to open a bar on either side of the country or bars rather on either side of the country, yeah. how much time, like specifically in New York, cause obviously you're a California guy, like how much time were you spending in New York before you decided that that was where you wanted to open a bar? Well, the New York opportunity, uh, was was great. Uh, you know, I love I love working with um, you know Cocktail Kingdom Hospitality. Uh, I, I you know great people, great people who obviously care about cocktails. Mm -hmm. But that situation, it, uh, I was actually out there for about eight months when we opened that place up, eight or nine months, and I was involved with with helping put the concept together uh, from the beginning. So it was actually I would say even more, probably closer to about almost a year. And that situation is like it, it was one of those situations where I was. Deeply, deeply, deeply hands-on. Uh, you know, they're just nonstop in the in the beginning, and then I, I, I pulled back while still checking in. Generally, I'm in New York about every every month or two, mm -hmm. so I'm at the bar all the time. Um, still, but uh, I'd say this. You know, the, the COVID shutdown is obviously the, the longest amount of time I've, I've taken between um, between trips back out there. Yeah, and sometimes I mean, it's, sometimes I feel like I'm even there more than that. So I'm, I'm still involved with it, and I. And I in in the, I'm not involved with the day to day, but I'm involved with just by every other aspect because I feel like nowadays, no matter if you're utilizing technology correctly, if you're using the systems and, and you, you're you're involved with you know uh, day to day infrastructure things like that, you can be very very in tune with the space without having even having to be there. I mean even I mean I'm, I'm in San Diego most of the time. And, you know, my bars are both close to me here, San Diego, raised by, are, you know, raised by wolves and polite provisions. But we have so much crazy back-end technology involved with the spaces that I always know what's going on no matter where I'm at. Like, I wake up, read manager notes, I can track sales, I track everything, track, you know, 
all of our numbers. I use this program called C2IT, which which works off the bat and it extracts data from the back end of whatever POS you're using. And I use that in conjunction with Upserve. And I feel like between those two interfaces, I can extract just about any information that I need. So, I mean, I have legitimately been in another country before and texted my bar back, hey, there's graffiti in the bathroom. We'll clean it up. You know, or the, the, you know. Obviously, it's before the shift because the time change. But like, I'm like, oh, hey, when you get into work today, do me a favor and clean up the graffiti in the bathroom before before you clock on, or not before you clock on, but before you start barbacking. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah you got it, man, thanks. And I, I'm like, I'm 12 time zones away, and because I'm so involved with the back end of information, that I'm, I'm able to do that. So when you combine that with being close geographically. Uh, it's unstoppable. I mean, I've even made jokes with my friends. Like I'm like, even on the other side of the world, I I feel like I have more access to more data about my bars than people who like live across the street of their own bar. I just want to say, I'm really happy to hear you say that uh, you're texting your bar back to clean graffiti from 12 time zones away before service um because you never want you never want to be the manager that like in the middle of service is calling to be like why isn't this doing why isn't this happening what's happening here oh my god those people are the worst (laughs) but we've all we all know those people are clueless man yeah yeah going back to another old episode of bartender at large uh i think you were you were maybe talking about the ghetto boys for some reason and how, Oh yeah, man. <laughs> mine's bro, rap a lot of records. Um, and, and you brought up that some, like a hobby that you have that will never go anywhere and never benefit anyone is that you make playlists that then you never listen to again. Oh, you know, I intend to listen to them and I have gotten better about that. Yeah. But I mean, it's funny. I just started making one today, just this morning. I was making like, I just started making a playlist. It only has like three or four songs on it, but I do do that. I have, I have some playlists that have like hundreds of songs on them and I don't know why I do it. I'm obsessive. Did that just start with streaming services and Spotify and Apple music? Or is that something when you were a no. kid, were you making mixtapes and some mix CDs? Oh, I and was like, heavy into mixtapes. Yeah. Like I used to just, I loved music from an early age and I had a little tape recorder. I don't even know where the hell I got it from. But I don't even think it was for me. I think it was just one that my family had. Mm-hmm. And then I just somehow just co-opted it. Oh, now I, why? I, now I don't know why. My parents got it for church when I was a kid. I was raised Jehovah's Witness, so that's also something else. Okay. Um, and so my parents had it for church, like taped sermons or something. But, but, you know, it's like when you're going to church three times a week, do you really need to record anything? So I ended up just kind of using it to record songs off of TV shows and stuff that I really liked. So I would just record like I don't know, bad to the bone off of uh, um, off of like Alvin and the Chipmunks or something. I would just I was very much into the craft of a mixtape. I still am. Like I treat my playlists like mixtapes. I don't treat them like a like a, like I guess a Spotify playlist. Like if somebody puts a, a, one of my playlists on shuffle, I get really pissed off. Right. When you put something together, it's in a specific order. They're supposed to be heard in order. Like, I don't even like it when people put, like, a musician's uh, songs on, on random. I feel like that's disrespectful. I've, I've also always felt like greatest hits albums are a cop-out, right? Yeah, yeah. Or I'm like, hey, if you're listening to this album, I don't know, it's like Bella Cootie or Paul McCartney or, uh, I don't know, Billie Eilish or anybody, right? Like, those songs are in order because they want them in that order. Like, if you start moving them out of the order that they came in, 
you're you're like messing with the flow of the album. I mean, at least with I mean, decent I'm not going to get like crazy upset if somebody does that, but if they do it, it's it's never going to happen if it's like if I'm the one driving the car. If I'm playing BJ, then like that's not going to happen under any circumstances. How did your Mexican Jehovah's Witness parents take to you getting into the Ghetto Boys? Oh, <laughs> uh, by then, man, like my, our our family had already started to fall apart by that point. Um, my dad had, had my dad left when I was about twelve. I guess if you're going to analyze it, that's kind of when I started to get really angry. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist or anything. So that was right around the point when, when I was about 12. So I was probably in about seventh grade. That's when I actually, my grades started to suffer. And, 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 and by suffer, I mean, that's when I started getting grades like normal kids. Right. That's when I was like, that's when like the, the advanced math, like kicked me out. That's when like, um, you know, I, I got put in like the regular math class and, um, so that's when I kind of just started that. That's when I started like at this point I had like never stolen anything. It wasn't like a bad kid. You know, I was just like very like, to be an honest little kid. And by now we'd stop going to church. We'd stop going to church probably when I was about first or second grade. And then that's when I started getting a lot of trouble. And that mostly started with like blipping off and stuff. So it was, it was weird. Cause I was like this nerdy little kid, like this nerdy little fat kid, but I felt like I still got like a lot of respect from like, from like the, the bad kids <laughs> because um, because I was just always a smart ass and I was like always flipping off to the teachers and stuff. I don't, man, I don't know why I did that in retrospect. That was a, I was a horrible little child. <laughs> and that's when I really started getting in trouble and like stealing and like stuff like that. Did you ever skateboard? Yeah, I skated. I'm decent enough. I'm not very good though. Uh, I think the best I could do is like, I could kick flip and I could, but my, my one thing I would say is I can ollie really high. So people would see me ollie high and be like, Oh, Hey man, what else can you do? I'm like, Oh, that's about it, dude. Maybe like a kickflip or something. If if I try twelve times and I nail it, I land it once. Uh, you know why I'm asking you this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because of the bartending is a crime shirt. Oh yeah, yeah, that's where it came from. Yeah, that's who was inspired. Yeah, I figured as much. Boards, yeah. Um, do you want to tell how many times have you told the story of the bartending is not a crime shirt? Oh my god! Yeah, let's tell it, man. Let's tell it. Go, um, go for it. So what, when I was bartending at Rick House. We had we were there like after hours. And we had some bartenders in from out of town, and you know we're, we're shutting down. Everybody has like a beer in front of them, uh, whatever, right? We're, everybody's like counting out money, and this was back when people didn't really, you know, most customers paid cash. So we only, uh, you know, I'd say only probably like twenty percent of the customers back then would would use credit card. So you have you you know you do like I don't know like a fourteen thousand dollar night or something. You just have fucking cash everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you know we're. we're we're, we're, we're adding up all the money. We're doing all the registers. There's cash all over the, all over the counter. We have a few bartenders in for visiting from out of town and, and they're kind of hanging out in the back, just, you know, I don't know, drinking beers and stuff. And, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, somebody starts pounding on the door. We're like, wait, what the fuck? And this is the financial district. So in the financial district, you know, on weekends, it's empty, dude. It's empty. We were pretty much, it was us and the Irish bar across the street. We're really the only spots open. So, so we'd already closed, so you know the streets were empty. And then some dudes comes pound on the on the two people are pound on the door, and we look out the window, and they're just plain clothes. So they just look like a couple of vagabonds off the street. <laughs> like let us in, let us in. And I'm like, who the fuck are you? Who are you guys? And, and they're like, you know, let us deal with the police. So and I'm like, very. I have lots of police officers in my family, like a ton of them. So, so I, I I know the protocol. I'm very respectful. I'm like, sir, I'm gonna I'm gonna. I'm going to call the police. I'm going to verify your identity. Then I'm going to let you in, you know? Yeah. So I call 911. I say, hey, there's a couple people outside. And, dude, they're, this whole time, they're fucking screaming. They're losing it. They're like, 
so so angry that we have the audacity to like verify the identity before we let strangers in, you know into a bar and it, so i'm like okay they verified sam all right as soon as i open the door the dude just comes in like throws him throws me on the floor kicks me throws some of the other people on the floor everybody get down get down dude they they raided us like it was some like a fucking like a drug bus like the drug bus of the century dude <laughs> came in the dude fucking kicked me when I'm on the ground and I'm like, okay. Cause I think what they're trying to do as I trust me, like I said, I have a lot of police in my family. I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to rile you up and they're trying to get you to overreact so that they can justify, uh, um, escalated use of force. Yeah. Like that dude wanted to kick my ass. That dude wanted to kick my ass. He wanted to beat the fuck out of me. And he knew that the only way he could do this if he kept, is if, if he like riled me up and pissed me off. So they're just like, why didn't you let us in? I'm like, you know, and I'm like, have my, I'm handcuffed right at this point. I'm like, you know, they're yelling at you and then uh, they start to, to scream or, you know, and then when you answer calmly, they like, get more angry because they're trying to piss you off. Because, again, I think the dude just wanted to beat my ass. Yeah. Um, by the way, this guy's a scumbag. Um, I don't even remember the agent's name, but this guy got in a lot of trouble for, like, breaking up parties. Um, like, he would break a DJ's uh, Mac, MacBook. He was that type of guy. He'd be like, oh, oh, you guys should, you guys uh, don't have a permit for music right now. So and then he just grabbed somebody's um, MacBook and, like, throw it down the stairs. That type of shit. Like right. he's just petty. He's just fucking. So he's gotten demoted since. Primarily based off of off of this, combined with a lot of his other um, bad behavior. The guys, the guys, thinks he's fucking uh, dirty hairy or something. Right. But anyway, so he just keeps calling me a liar. It's like, why didn't you? Why didn't you let us in? I'm like, sir, you know, you permission to speak, officer. Uh, you guys were in plain clothes uniforms. I had no idea, you know, who you are. I have to like look out for the safety of my staff. And all this cash that's on the, that's on the bar top, and he's just like, "You're a liar! You're a goddamn liar!" Just to be honest, and we're all looking at each other. Like a couple of bartenders we have are from other other countries, and they're like, "Wait, is this like normal in America?" Um, so they just went off on us, dude. They like they couldn't bust us on anything, so they were just kept looking. And I don't even know why they fucking came. Um, we're pretty sure we know who called them. It was somebody who's trying to fuck with us who didn't like the owners. They were just trying to agitate something. Okay. But they went nuts. They started looking through our bottles, looking through all of our um, all of our liquor. They're trying to bust us for something, but they couldn't get anything on us. So they were just like looking. And finally, they said like, "Oh, how come there's like uh, there, there's little bits of jalapeno? There's little bits of jalapeno in this tequila. What's going on?" And we're like, "Oh, that's an infusion, huh? That's rectifying. That's against the law, you know." So they kind of just like made us pour out all of our infusions, which had, at that time I think it was like probably like 30 bottles or something, uh, if not more. And then, then they arrested me. They took me to, they took me to jail and I had to spend the night in San Francisco, uh, jail, which I mean, wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't that big of a deal, but, but it was actually pretty just fucking strange that I'm like, okay. So I got drunk in public when I was neither drunk nor in public. Um, and then they, I, I had to go to court like two mornings after to defend myself. So when I went in there, they didn't even bother to show up. Like this Friday, they showed up a week later and we're like, hey, in the middle of service, 8 p.m. on a Friday, uh, where are your infusions at? We want to make sure you're not doing infusions anymore. So they start coming after us. They start. This is the point where they made us dump like 40 bottles of booze down the train. You know, jalapeno tequila. I don't know what else you can think of, but... They made us just dump everything out. Then they started going to the bar's sister properties. They went to Bourbon and Branch, did the same thing, stop service like um, on a weekend at you know prime prime hours. And they just like all of a sudden had a hard on for us, dude. And we're just like coming after us, like, oh, what are these homemade bitters? Are these homemade bitters? You can't do this. And it just became a nightmare for local bars. I don't think they went after any other bars. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, but everyone else was in fear. 
like, oh, damn, is our bar next? What are they going to do? Are they going to shut us down? So it became something where it was for about two months. Everybody stopped infusions. Everybody stopped, you know, pulled drinks off their menus and made all these adaptations. And then the rest of the country was watching San Francisco because like, oh, shit, if things go down there, then that, that it's going to resonate through the rest of the U.S. So it was one of those things where I kind of, in a way, I became this, like, hero in the industry. Um, like, I remember I went to an event in New York like almost immediately after. And like, I got like a, a round of applause when I walked in a room because they're like, Oh, you're sticking for bartenders rights, man. Thank you. Thank you. So it became this, this like, like a cultural meme, I guess. And that was the point when, when, when all of a sudden the bar, the bar industry in San Francisco pulled together like, all right, we need to do something, dude. Like these people have us like living in fear. We're trying to innovate and make cocktails and, and, and they're, they're just coming after us. What the fuck is going on? So then we had to end up hiring, um, I don't know if I get too into detail on this because a lot of it might be less than. Um, I will say that that we had some friends, our, our owner of, of the bars ended up having some friends that he had to uh, pull some favors on. Sure. And they ended up having to get a lobbyist to, to help us out. So it was one of those circumstances where that, that dude didn't realize, but by him coming after us and me, what he ended up doing was he ended up waking up a sleeping giant and that's the entire hospitality industry in San Francisco. And, and the thing is he had already been messing with nightclubs and been pissing on and, and shitting on nightclubs. So just by him doing that, he, there was already this coalition of people who hated him and his abuse of force. So by doing that, by coming after us, all of a sudden all the city's best restaurants and bars all pulled together and then combined forces with those clubs. So it just became this big thing where it's like, Hey man, this guy's a fucking monster. He, he, we're trying to innovate. We're bringing tourism and, and acclaim to the city by doing these bars and these cocktails. And this guy's coming after us. It's like he's trying to take us back to the Stone Age in regards to food and drink. What's going on? So that woke up the mayor. That woke up pretty much everybody uh, who, who's involved in, uh, you know, police abuse and police oversight. And they kind of they sent that fucking guy back to the Stone Age, man. I think he's probably like writing parking tickets or something right now. All because. He decided that because you didn't answer the door right away and wanted to check and yeah, make sure it was yeah. actually cops. Yeah, that was insane. It is crazy because, dude, this is the funniest part. This is the funniest part. So I show up, you, you know, to um, – I show up for booking, and I'm fucking dressed like a mixologist, you know. I like, you know, in 2009, and I have, like, my vest and my tie, and it's like a, I have a nice vest and a tie. I'm, like, dressed all dapper, and he's like, what the fuck are you doing in here? <laughs> The cops just like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm like, oh man, you're never gonna believe it. So anyway, this guy, like, um, you know, they showed up, they put their pound on the door, and and he's wearing plain clothes, so I didn't know what to do. So so I, you know, I called the police to verify his identity, and the cop booking me as he's fingerprinting me, like, dude, that's what you're supposed to do. Are you kidding me? And I'm like, yeah, I wanted to verify his identity. He's like, that's what you're supposed to do. Well, you can't just be letting any random stranger in off the street. And I was like, that's exactly what I was telling him. And I'm like, besides, we have like, you know, $12,000 cash on the bar top, if not more. I'm like, I can't just let some a fucking stranger in like that. He's like, no, you didn't. You, and he's like, what they book you, actually book you on. I'm like, they had me down for, for drunk in public. And he's like, you're not even drunk. You don't seem drunk. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I had like a, I had a half of a beer. And, he, and the cop, the guy booking me was flat out like, dude, this sounds like bullshit. I think they're just fucking with you. So then that night I ended up, um, they, they, my, um, my cellmate was this young kid who had gotten a, uh, who was in there for DUI, and he was acting so hard, man. It was funny. He was like, "Man, fuck this, fuck these cops, blah blah blah." 
like they're lucky you know he's just acting like trying to act all hardcore gangster or something yeah and then about in about half an hour he just started crying it was just falling his eyes out oh. <laughs> so i i grabbed the, i grabbed the one roll of toilet paper that was back there <laughs> that was my pillow for the night oh. i just went to sleep with the with the uh, with the with the roll of toilet paper as my pillow slept on the floor <laughs> Thank you for sharing that whole story. <laughs> oh, man. I, I feel like... Oh, it was fucking crazy, man. The best part was um, was when, when they first pulled me in, there was like, they had like this glass tank. It looks like a, like a like a fish tank. Yeah. And there was like this fucking hardcore like Cholo Veterano dude who was just like, that means like, you know, like OG. Yeah. And this dude was just like tatted from head to toe. And he was just, he must have been on like PCP or something crazy because he was just like going insane in this in this little glass jar and i was thinking in my mind like oh fuck me please don't make that guy my cellmate for the night <laughs> fuck me put me in with anybody <laughs> but him yeah i mean put me in with that with that kid that's crying man i'm fine yeah okay yeah so it was, it was pretty it was pretty ridiculous man the whole the whole fiasco so that's where the idea came from uh, to make those t-shirts the the bartending's on a crime and we ended up not making them when i was at rick house i don't know why for one, one reason or another but when when, uh, when we started doing stuff at, at, at Play Provisions, that's when I made sure that we made those T-shirts yeah. for the place. Okay, so you've owned a bunch of bars. You spent a <clears throat> unnecessary but, in retrospect, hilarious night in jail. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you worked as a brand ambassador. You had serious health issues. You overcame that. And then you decided to start a podcast. And you just finished 200 episodes of the podcast. Um, yeah, episode 200 was just last week, man. It's crazy. So, I mean, there's a bunch of questions I could ask you about it, but uh, I think the most apropos as someone that, I mean, I avoided doing a podcast for a really long time. What made you yeah. want to start doing a podcast? The funny thing is the podcast was never meant to be, we never intended to start a podcast. That was never, never our, um, like our goal in, in any way at all. We had actually made a movie. We made a documentary called Bartender at Large. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it was like a, a nano budget. It was a tiny, tiny budget. Like, we recorded the entire thing for, like, I don't know, 12 grand or something like that. So we made it with – which, trust me, I thought that was a lot of money. Now, that, uh, after I met other people who made documentaries and stuff, I guess that's, like, absolutely nothing. Yeah. So so we made the, this this documentary. We had no money left. So we're like, okay, well, shoot, we need to get the word out because documentary – you record it. And you start editing and all that, and it's not going to see the public. You know, the public's not going to see it for almost a year, like nine months. So we're like, all right, well, we need to get the word out about this. We need people to know about this, and we don't have any any, any money or any budget for for advertising or marketing. So like, all right, we'll just start a documentary called Bartender Large, and then we'll use that to promote the movie. And then it's funny because in retrospect, I mean, we have listeners who who listen to the show and who I don't even think we know who don't even know we have a movie. Yeah. So it, it, it's become this thing where where the, the movie did really well it's like screened around the world you know i think it's screened like 25 cities in like four or five different countries won a bunch of awards you know which was pretty awesome knock on wood and but the thing was it the the i mean it you know it's an indie film people see it you watch it once it's done right mm-hmm. with a, a dark with the podcast people listen to it every week so we got we found this rhythm where next thing you know the the podcast just ended up taking on a life of its own and and it's something that, that I guess we're really proud of. In a way, it ended up. I mean, if we hadn't done that movie, we probably wouldn't have a podcast. It all started from it all started from that documentary. Because I think once we made the movie, there was like so much more that we wanted to add to it 
that we're like, oh, okay, well, you know, since we didn't have enough room to cover all the topics we wanted to in the movie, let's just start covering them on the podcast. And next thing you know, you know, one thing leads to another. There's, it seems like there's always a new topic. There's always something to talk about or always a new perspective on a different topic. So I don't see us ending the podcast. I don't want to say anytime soon, but I want to say ever because it seems like there's always something to talk about. Has there been anyone that you've had on the podcast that you, um, I mean, it, it's weird because we all know that bartenders are just people and it is ridiculous when people get a little rock star about it, but has there been anyone that you've yeah. interviewed for the podcast that you legit were like, holy shit, why is this person taking the time to talk to me? Um, I mean, obviously like someone like Dale DeGroff, like, man, you know, we had Dale back for our 200th episode in that, I mean, for the first time, it was, he was on our, our our episode, and that was just that, that was pretty amazing to me. Someone like Dale, who I mean, I, I know him well enough, you know, I, I would consider him a friend. But you know, having just being able to sit with him and talk to him about cocktails and talk about the Rainbow Room and, and talk about the early days of craft cocktails, which is something that just it blew my mind. Uh, someone else who I think isn't necessarily a big name in the cocktail world, but I'm just I was super excited and super happy to get them on was Bob Holmes, mm-hmm. the author of, of Flavor. The, the science of our most neglected sense. That was really cool to be able to get him on. He's a, you know, he's a PhD. He has a PhD in evolutionary biology and he's a, a, a one of the world's most foremost experts in regards to flavor and flavor perception. That, that was really cool. That episode, uh, I, I thought it was going to do better than it did. I mean, it did well, it did well, but I think, but I'm, su- I'm super glad it's one of my favorite episodes just because it was really cool to sit down with someone for half an hour and talk about, flavor because it's something that again it's like we most people live their day-to-day without ever really thinking about it much or how they perceive it and a lot of what bartenders and chefs think of in regards to flavor flavor most of it's just like it's conventional wisdom and like you know old wives tales and superstitions most of it isn't based in science you know you know even if people try to tell you otherwise so it's really fascinating to be able to sit down with with a flavor scientist and actually go over all these things well, especially because earlier you were talking about how you were always just kind of a little nerd and maybe the yeah. maybe the nerdy stuff is what you get into. And you mentioned before, too, you read like a book a week. What are you reading right now? Oh, I wish I could say I'm reading something lighthearted, but I'm not. I'm reading a, a, The Great Influenza. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is it, – it's like a heavy it's – like, it's like a 600-page book on, uh, you know, the, the, the flu pandemic of 1918. It's heavy, dude, but it's fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. It's almost reads like a detective novel because it's really about breaking down how how we we worked our way through it, how scientists worked their way through it. But the book actually starts like 40 years before uh, the outbreak and actually details how, how the world had prepped themselves up for it. Because in the late 1800s, like a medical degree didn't really fucking mean anything. It was still trash in the U.S. Yeah. So it actually really started – about 20 or 30 years earlier than the outbreak. And that's when actually had a few people who, a few people who were committed to science who were like, Hey, look, we need to completely revitalize what it means to be a doctor in the United States. You know, you, you need to have like a degree in science. You need to actually like have good grades and you need, it needs to be harder to become a doctor. Cause a lot of these medical schools, like you could fail half of your class and still become a doctor. Like some of these people never saw patients. They didn't do any lab work. They had no uh, prior schooling in science or, anything to do with anatomy. It's insane. You know, the Spanish flu of 1918 was insane. Like there were some people who it was common for people to die within 
12 hours of showing symptoms. Whoa. Yeah. You're, you're fine. And all of a sudden you like get the sniffles and like within the day you're dead. What it did was crazy. And actually most of the people who died, the highest casualties were young people. Mm -hmm. If you were over 60, your odds of dying were almost nothing. But if you were, you know, within like 20 to 35, your odds of dying were the worst. The reason why is because, you know, he, he uh, you know, un unrolls the story. Uh, the author tells you that what it does is it hijacks your immune system and turns it against itself. So those with the most robust and strong immune systems were actually the most likely to die. This is incredibly topical. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it's almost depressingly so, which I almost in a way regret reading it. But I had to read it because I wanted to see how, how history repeats itself. And it, it did 100%. Everything, everything that's happening right now that we think is absolutely awful and stupid was already, already happened in this country. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Weird note to end on. <laughs> but yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, if people want to find you, if somehow people uh, listening to this podcast have never heard of the Bartender at Large podcast. How do they find you? How do they find you personally online? How, how do people keep up? Oh, shoot. I would say um, just look up Bartender at Large. We're on Spotify. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play, Stitcher, anything that you can think of. It's that. Uh, if you're more traditional, you just want like recipes and, and look up things like that and read our blog post. You go to bartenderlarge.com or follow us on Instagram. We are at bartender at large. Uh, somebody had a question for me and want to reach out to me directly. The easiest way is probably through Instagram. And that's hit me up at hungry bartender. And uh, I mean, I'm more than happy to, you know, DM back or, or shoot anybody answer or answer any questions that somebody might have. And I would say, you know, I, I want to say thanks for having me on and, and thank y'all for listening. Thanks so much for taking the time, Eric and uh, good stories, man. <laughs> <laughs> so many stories you heard all the ways to get in touch with eric there if you like what we're doing here like and share and subscribe to the podcast if you want to reach out to me you can do that at bartender atlas on all forms of social media i'm josh lindley be well <laughs>